Thanks for listening to iTruths, the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church of Texarkana, Texas. I'm Richard Hornock, the senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church, and the following is a message that I delivered during one of our Sunday morning worship services. I trust that it will be beneficial to your walk with Jesus Christ. Thanks again. You know, it's kind of a recurring theme I think over the last uh, few years, it seems like I'm regularly talking about how things just seem to be spinning out of control. And I am certain that, uh, you know, say a hundred years from now, they are, historians are going to look back on our time and they're going to say that was a time when some monumental things happened. There was so much change and the rate of change uh, was just incredible. You know, you just think about some of the things that have happened in the last five to ten years. Uh, I remember various, you know, experts, you know, talking about how, you know, in, in 20, 30 years, this is going to be acceptable. And they were referring to things that now are very acceptable. I mean, it didn't take a generation or two generations to make that transformation, to call that a, an acceptable change. I mean, it just happened within four or five years. And, you know, you can sit and you just kind of use your imagination about what areas of life, whether it's talking about gender, whether it's talking about economics, whether it's talking about social issues that... Uh, that we talk about regularly, I mean, there has just been so much change. And it leads to the question of, you know, okay, who in the world is in charge? Now, the people in this room, I hope, and the people worshiping the Lord all over the country and really all over the world, they know who's in charge. But the truth of the matter is the people outside, they they probably are saying, man, is it ever going to stop how in the world is there going to be some order brought back to it? Who is, is th- are things just really and truly going to spin out of control? Well, like I said, we know the answer. We know who's in charge. I mean, God's in charge. We serve and live and move in a, a sovereign God who sent his only begotten son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. John three seventeen. Well, how in the world is God going to bring about order from all of this chaos? How in the world is God, you know, the kind of one of the themes I've talked about over the last three weeks has been just the whole idea of justice. How is, how is justice going to get served? How is God going to ultimately make things right? Now, we don't exactly know, you know, when... All this is going to happen, but we ultimately know God's ultimate answer because he's revealed it to us in this book of Revelation that we've been studying. Now, if you've not been around or if you uh, have slept too much since last Sunday, we're, we're doing a study of the book of Revelation. And this is today, I think, is our fourth sermon on it. 
And uh, we're going to be considering what's in chapter 5 of Revelation. Now, just a quick review. What's the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation is basically a vision of Jesus and what he will do, seen and recorded by the Apostle John when he was in about 95 A.D. It was while he was in prison on the island of Patmos, and he was to write and record it for the seven churches of Asia Minor. And uh, we saw basically a, a little simple outline of the book. In verse 19 of chapter 1, he was told, write this stuff down. Write what you saw. Chapter 1 was this incredible vision of Jesus Christ walking amongst his churches, evaluating them. Write what you, the things you have seen, the things which are, which we kind of take to mean the state of the church as represented in those seven messages to the church that we saw in chapters 2 and 3. And then what we started to look at last week and the things that are to take place. We kind of get the impression from chapter 4 that we're now talking about things that were future to John. And uh, when you get to chapter 4... You, you see that John is, is, is caught up in the Spirit, in this incredible vision, this incredible dream, and uh, he's, there's a door open to him, and he's invited, commanded, really, to go through that door, and he goes into the throne room of God. And we saw this last week. We walked through chapter 4, and we saw this incredible, incredible vision of God's throne room. Saw this throne and evidently God the Father sitting on that throne and and around the throne were 24 elders and they were regularly worshiping him and prostrating themselves before him. Real close to the throne were four creatures that were just magnificent, kind of like the, the creatures that Ezekiel saw, but they're also like the creatures that Isaiah saw in chapter 6 of Isaiah when he saw the throne room of God. And, and the response of the, the, the multitude of people that were gathered around the throne, well, we had to stop kind of halfway through the vision and that's where we're going to pick it up today because what we're going to see today is what I'm calling the treatment plan of God. And you're saying, well, that's a little different. What does that mean? I'll, I'll explain it to you. But what I want to do for you today, again, like we did last week, is I just want to read the chapter to you. Remember back in, uh, I think it's verse 3 of chapter 1? It said, blessed are those who read, I want a blessing, and those who hear, I want you guys to have a blessing, the words of this revelation. So I think just in light of what the content is, I think it would be very, very appropriate for us to again stand together. And let me read to you chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. Again, we're just kind of picking up in the middle of the vision. He's seen the throne. He's seen the being on the throne. He's seen the four living creatures. He's seen the 24 elders all the things that they've been saying. And then in chapter 1, or chapter 5, verse 1, he says, And I saw 
in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, he who is worthy to open the book and to break, or excuse me, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so, so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took it, the book, out of the right hand of him who sat on it, on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb having each one a harp and a golden bowl full of incense with all, their, all the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying in a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Have a seat. You know, when you want to step through this part of the vision that he had seen, it just kind of breaks down into three little areas. The first is what I'm calling the sealed scroll, the verses 1 through 4. You see there in verse 1, he says he's in the middle of this vision. As I've said, he's seen the throne and the creatures, the one on the throne and the 24 elders, and, and he's heard all this, this multitude singing praise to God. 
And, and then he looked real closely at that one sitting on the throne, and he had a little book. Now, the word actually is biblios, which is, we translate books, but understand that that could have and should have referred to a scroll. The books like we have now, uh, I confirmed this even this morning when I was talking to Daniel, my son-in-law, that they used to call these a codex, okay, a codice. If you had several of them, they're a codice. And, and this thing of paper, and it's bound at one end of it like this, and it contains an awful lot of information. That technology, if you will, wasn't invented until about 100, 200, 300 years after Christ. Prior to that, you just had what a scroll, you know, and, and a scroll could, I mean, it could get as much as uh, 20 feet long, and they just rolled it up, you know, the pages were maybe, you know, 12 to 15, 18 inches high, but, you know, long way, and they'd roll it up, and, and, and then they'd write on it, and you just reveal a little bit more of the scroll, and that's how you found your place. And very, very important documents or scrolls were often sealed. And a really important document was normally sealed seven times. Remember, we talked last week about how that number seven, a lot of times it means perfect or complete or can't get any better than this, you know. And so here is this scroll, really, not a book like my translation has, more technically, a scroll. And, and it's real interesting. It says it's sitting upon the hand, the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And it, it, you get the idea that he's holding it out like he's offering it. You know, it's sitting upon his hand. He's not holding it like this, like, come take it away from me. No, he's holding it as if he's offering it. And so John sees that. And here's this loud, this scroll sitting on the hand of the one on the throne. Now, it's not really answered here. We're going to learn the answer of it. But, okay, what is this scroll? Well, I'm calling this the treatment plan of God, okay? Let me explain to it. But maybe there could have been a better title, but this is the best I've come up with so far. You know, in the state of Texas, there are about 30 facilities. We call them residential treatment centers. And, you know, if you committed a felony, but you were a relatively pretty good guy or girl, and you didn't, you know, use a weapon in it, and you didn't seem like you were the kind of person that was going to commit a lot of them, the judge has the opportunity to send you to one of these residential treatment centers. By the way, it's run, they're operated by some really incredible software. We just wish all 30 of them would buy it, you know, and contribute to the cause, but uh, that's how I know about these things. And, and when you go to that treatment center, when the judge has sent you there, instead of sending you off to the big house, you will meet with a counselor. And that counselor's job is to come up with a treatment center that would do two things. Satisfy justice, make sure that justice is served, 
make things right, and number two, equip you, prepare you, train you, treat you, so that you don't make that, so you don't make the goofy dumb mistake again. We don't want you to go to one of these residential treatment centers and spend 18 months only to go about six months later and rob another Easy Mart or do something else dumb. We want to fix you or help you so that you won't commit the same crime again. Well, in a way, I think this scroll, as we will see over the next several sermons, this scroll was basically the treatment plan that God wrote for humanity. Because God is going to do two things through the content of that treatment plan. He is going to exact justice. He's going to make things right. Justice will be served. But he's trying to prepare humanity so that they don't make the same stupid mistake they made the first time. What was that saying? What was that dumb, stupid mistake that humanity made the first time? They rejected Jesus. We're getting ready to celebrate Advent, the first coming of Jesus. What did they do with Jesus Christ? Did they accept him as their Savior and Lord? No. Rather than put him on a throne, they put him on a cross. They rejected him. Rather than see that he was doing everything in the spirit and power of the Holy Spirit, they said he was doing it all in the spirit and power of Satan. And so when Jesus left, he said, I'm coming back. Well, what's going to keep humanity from doing the same thing again when he comes back the second time? The contents of that treatment plan. So just, just, just to understand what is in that scroll, I think it's God's plan for exacting justice coupled with equipping humanity so that they don't blow it again. Now back to the text. So John says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne this, this scroll. And boy, it was filled up. It, it was written on the inside and the out. It's got a lot in it. And I saw a strong angels proclaiming, who is worthy to open the book and to break it sealed? And no one, verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. There's the treatment plan. There's the document that is going to spell out how God's justice is going to be served. And no one, no one was worthy to open it. Now, just before we move on, I, I want you to notice John's reaction. John is watching this. It's all, it's all happening there in the throne room of God. And John's watching it. 
And he sees that no one is worthy. And he begins to weep. Now, just think about it. Do you remember what we know about the Apostle John? This isn't the kind of, he wasn't always like this. Do you remember what his nickname was when he first started following Jesus? He had a brother. His brother was James, James and John. And, and they both came from a, a fairly well-to-do family. Uh, their father had a fishing business. They weren't just fishermen. I mean, they had lots of boats, lots of employees. And, you know, John was so well-known that even the high priest knew who he was, even though he grew up 90 miles away, which might as well have been across the country. I mean, these, these are guys that had, came from some means. And do you remember what the, uh, their little nickname was? The sons of thunder. I mean, there was this one time when Jesus and the disciples were walking past a village. It was a Samaritan village. And uh, the Samaritan village made it real clear, we don't want you coming in and shopping at our grocery stores. None of our hotels are going to rent you a room. You guys just keep going. You're not welcome here. And you remember what James and John's uh, comment was? Jesus, would you give us the authority to call down some lightning and just to- make these people toast? I mean, he, he and James were like, we're not used to being treated this way. When we speak, people listen. We've got enough money, we've got enough cabbage in the bank that we get what we want. And they were not at all used to being pushed aside. Well, think about this. John, I think, realizes here is a document that is is going to spell out how God is going to make everything right. But no one was available. No one was worthy to execute it. And rather than getting mad, like he would have when he was a young man, as a seasoned, old, mature saint, he began to be grieved because God's justice wasn't going to be served. You know, that tells me something about my reactions, the way I react, the way you react. Those are kind of little indicators of where we are with God. As we grow and mature, we should get a lot more Christ-like. I mean, I mean, you know, we're seeing all this chaos going on out there, all these ways that God is just being blasphemed. Uh, does it cause us to grieve? Or are we still in that stage where we just wish God would give us the power to call down some lightning and, and fry a few people? I mean, I think that maybe... John is illustrating the the spiritual depth that God wants to foster in each of us. Yeah, there's a time for righteous indignation. There's a time for for holy anger. But remember what, what the Apostle Paul said? He quoted God as saying, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of it. And John, in this situation, it's like, he realized nothing going to happen and because there wasn't anyone worthy. Well, look at verse 5. One of the elders, and I'm assuming this is one of the 24 elders, 
comes up to him and says, hey, hey, stop weeping. No need to cry. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the scroll and its seven seals. In these two titles, uh, just very strategic titles that are being ascribed to this lamb that we're going to see here in the next verse. He is the Lion of Judah. It comes right out of Genesis 49. Genesis 49, Jacob, remember Jacob? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Abraham got the promise. It got passed down to his son, Isaac. Isaac got the promise. It got passed down to his son, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. They become the 12 tribes of Israel. Jacob's family is the children of Israel because Jacob's name was changed to Israel. Well, specifically, one of those 12, Judah, was designated that his family would become the kings of the nation. And, and he's called the Lion of Judah. Out of Judah is going to come this, this Messiah. Out of Judah is going to become this Christ. Jew, Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed one. Christ is the Greek word, which means anointed one. They're one and the same. It's just one is Hebrew, one's Greek. And, and way back, 2,000 years before Jesus was even born, Jacob tells Judah that out of him is going to come this lion. Well, fast forward a thousand years. God makes the same promise to one of Judah's descendants, David. David came from the family of Judah. And David was told that one of his descendants is going to become the eternal king. And when Isaiah is preaching about it 250 years later, in about 750 B.C., in chapter 11 of Isaiah, he refers to, to the Messiah, the, the promised one, this ultimate king that's going to come. He refers to him as the, the one who is out of the root of David. So what, the, what does the elder say to to, to John, he says, hey, don't, you, you don't need to cry. Because the Messiah, uh, the Lion of Judah, the Root of David, he is able to do it. Why? And you ought to underline this if you've got a, a paper Bible. Verse 5, because he has overcome so as to open the book. He's qualified. He's worthy because he's overcome. We're going to see a little bit more specifically how he overcame. But he's done what was necessary to put him in that position of being worthy. In verse 6, he says, And I saw between the throne, you know, with, with the four living creatures around it, and the elders, the 24, there's kind of that gap, John looked real closely, and he saw a lamb standing. But notice that that standing lamb looked like it had been slain. 
It looks like it had been slaughtered, sacrificed. It had been dead. It wasn't just wounded, cut up. It looks like it had been dead, but evidently now is alive. I saw this lamb standing there as if slain. And remember I talked last week about how lots of times in dreams and visions there's just some weird stuff and it's kind of symbolic and it means something but you know it's hard to even imagine it well this this lamb has seven horns and seven eyes you know like i said last week i think eyes are beautiful but i prefer people to just have two of them not seven of them or more he he's got this seven horns horns tend to 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 suggest authority and power and strength and eyes tend to suggest intelligence wisdom insight and here is is this lamb and he's got seven of these horns which kind of suggests the the complete perfect all you need good as it can get authority and the complete authoritative good as you can get Wisdom or intelligence, insight. He's got seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out to all the earth. And he came, this lamb came, and he took the scroll out of the hand of the one who sat down on the throne, who was sitting on the throne. So that's the worthy lamb. Now, because we know the rest of the story, we find out, and it makes perfect sense, this is Jesus. This is the second person of the Trinity. Remember, I talked about this. I mean, you got the the, the first person of the Trinity is there on the throne. And last week, we talked about how between the, around the throne, there was the seven spirits the, the perfect spirit, that, that seemed to indicate that's the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And now you've got the Lamb, the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist called him. He's there, so the second person of the Trinity is there. So, so here's our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, first person, second person, third person, there. And, and it's like the Father has this treatment plan and the Son is taking the treatment plan and the son is 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 empowered or possessed or you know filled if you will with the holy spirit and and it's like it's god but it's specifically going to be jesus in the power of the holy spirit which sometimes in the gospel he suggests this is how it's going to work he's taken the scroll and he's ultimately going to open it. We're not going to see that today. We're going to see that next week because that starts in chapter 6. But that's what John saw. First he starts off, he, he takes a good gander at the one on the throne and sees that he's got a scroll in his hand. But then he's all sad because no, one can take, no one's got the authority to take him. No one's worthy. No one's good enough to go get that scroll and do anything with it. But then he sees the Son of God, the Lamb of God, go and get the scroll. 
Well, look how the rest of the chapter goes. And we could take a long, long time to look at it, but this is just the response that Jesus comes along and is worthy. Verse 8, it says, And when he took the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, having each one a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints. And they sang this new song, Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals. And here we learn just how he overcame. For thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. It's got to be referring to the fact that Jesus, when he died on the cross, was purchasing salvation. Verse 10, And thou hast made them to be a kingdom and priests of our God, and they will reign upon the earth. It's like he, he not only purchased their salvation, he has, in, in doing so, he has made them into a nation a, of, of priests. First Peter, chapter 2, Peter, Peter talks about that. He says, we are a, a holy people, a, a, a holy nation of priests. That's what we are. You're here today and you've trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior. You have that eternal relationship with, with God, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did for you in purchasing with his blood your salvation. You're part of this nation of priests. You're part of this kingdom Verse 11, he says, And I looked and I heard the voice of, of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was just myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands, and they were all saying, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all the things in them, I heard them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures are saying, Amen. That's right. That's right. All of that in response to the fact that Jesus was found worthy to execute the treatment plan of God, to execute the justice of God. And we're just going to stop right there in, in, in the vision. We'll pick it up again next week, but, but just think about what we've just seen here. And just in a dramatic way, John saw that God had prepared a way to make all things right. And the only being in all of creation that was qualified, that was worthy to execute it is Jesus Christ, his son, the second person of the Trinity, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Again, it'd be nice to just keep going 
with the vision, but we're just going to stop here. And like I always do, I, 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 okay, we just got to say, so what? Okay, what do I do with this? Well, you know, you didn't have to go to seminary to get last week's so what, and you didn't have to go to seminary to get this week's so what. These things are just so obvious. But I'll tell you what, they, they, they are just so ignored today too. Here's the first one. We have got to realize and live in light of the fact that Jesus is the only worthy one. You know, just by way of application, we're living in a world that, that just wants to find anything and everything that would lead to God. But what did Jesus say? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through me. And I think so many times we, we even are, are just almost ashamed to admit that, that it's what you do with Jesus Christ. It's your disposition towards Jesus Christ that, that matters. I mean, we all know some incredibly good, good folks. Great folks. But my friends, what really counts is not their goodness, it's their relationship to Christ. It is, it is, he is the only way to the Father. Sounds so exclusive, but it's the truth. And, and you and I, I mean, that, that is one of the reasons we're called to live a Christ-like life so that we point people to the Savior. Only Jesus is worthy. And he's worthy because he was slain. See, the center of history is not what we're getting to celebrate here in about four weeks. It's not his birth. It was his death. It was the, the sacrifice he made for us on Calvary. Do you remember how the how it was put here? The elders, the creatures, they're saying, worthy art thou to take the book, to break its seals, for thou was slain. And in so doing, purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. It's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary that is the center of it all. When Jesus Christ died in our place, that is the thing for which we ought to be most grateful, and that is the thing that ought to totally determine the way we live. We had the God of the universe, second person of the Trinity, the Creator, the Lord, the Sovereign One. He died for us. He purchased our salvation by dying on the cross of Calvary. 
you know, we, we all respond well to gifts, or at least we should. Someone does something nice for us, wow, we really ought to, you know, treat them kindly, respond correctly, you know, give them a gift card, say thank you, live, live a life that, that is pleasing to this person who was so generous to us. I mean, my goodness. If Jesus Christ truly died for us, which he did, what kind of a life does that call us to? I mean, we, we spend so much time pursuing and pushing towards all kinds of things. And the thing that we ought to pursue and push towards the most is Jesus Christ, because he died for us. He, he, he is our Messiah who died for us. He, he's the anointed one who came and stood in our place and received our punishment. You know, I, when I get to Thanksgiving time, I, I always struggle with, okay, what, you know, to be thankful for? Because, you know, life just seems so good and it's so manageable, utilitarian kind of attitude. I can make it good. We can make it good if we just get organized enough or we pull a little bit of money out and solve issues that way. We can always make life good. Truth of the matter is, all of that is just surfacey stuff. The thing that we ought to be most grateful for is the thing that we could never fix on our own. We could never fix on our own our relationship with the God of the universe. And that's why Jesus came and died for us. He's worthy because he purchased for us our salvation. Do you know him? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? You know, it's wonderful that you're here. It's wonderful that you do things that, that, you know, make you a better person. But, but the truth of the matter is none of that counts. It is simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you. Do you know him? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as personal Savior? Have you come to the point in your life when you realized you were not worthy, but only he was? You know, we, we sometimes gloss over that fact and we just assume, you know, we're in such a Christian society, everybody's trusted Christ. But the real question is, is have you trusted Jesus Christ? Not your parents, not your grandparents, not your spouse. But have you come to the place where you recognized, I'm not worthy, but Jesus Christ is worthy. And he died for me. Let's pray. Just before we wrap up, I want to give you just a, a quiet moment here. Just to reflect on what we saw in the Word. The incredible worthiness of uh, 
Jesus Christ. And the focus on what he did for us. Father, it is our prayer that if there is someone here today that does not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, they might come to know him to know whose life eternal. I pray, Father, that they would uh, trust in him, that they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. Father, we who have trusted Christ, I pray that today would have served as a good reminder of just how incredibly uh, blessed we are because Jesus Christ died for us and you brought us to the point where we could trust in him and receive that, that free gift of salvation. Pray, Father, that that would uh, move us and motivate us so that we, like the, the beings in heaven, would say, Worthy. Worthy is the Lamb. So we thank you, Father.